This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of cerebral palsy gait disorders from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Gait disorders in cerebral palsy are commonly caused by lower limb spasticity and are the primary reason for orthopedic consultations in cerebral palsy patients. Diagnosis is made with quantitative evaluation using kinematic, kinetic, and EMG analysis. Treatment is usually physical therapy, orthotics, and bracing in patients with mild gait disorders. Single-event, multi-level surgery has become the gold standard surgical intervention for patients with continued difficulty with gait. Now, let's get into the episode. As far as epidemiology, gait disorder is the primary reason for orthopedic consultations in cerebral palsy patients. Keep in mind that independent gait is expected between 12 to 18 months old in non-cerebral palsy children. As far as the pathophysiology of cerebral palsy gait disorders, this is divided into primary deviations, secondary deviations, and tertiary deviations. Primary deviations are those caused by the primary central nervous system insult, including spasticity, weakness, and or compromised proprioceptive pathways. Secondary deviations are growth-related deviations that arise due to abnormal loading in the setting of primary gait deviations, including anatomic shortening of muscle tendon units, for example, myotactic contractures, persistent bony deformities, for example, femoral antiversion, and joint subluxation dislocations, for example, hip subluxation or equinoplano valgus feet. Tertiary deviations include compensations related to secondary gait deviations. As far as the etiology of cerebral palsy gait disorders, both qualitative and quantitative analysis has been used to describe gait. Quantitative evaluation, like kinematic-slash-kinetic-slash-EMG analysis, have changed how we understand, classify, and treat this condition. New treatment strategies focus on understanding the underlying pathophysiology, or deviations, planes of deformity, like sagittal, coronal, and transverse, and the anatomic level, like hip, knee, and ankle. Now let's talk about the classification of cerebral palsy gait disorders, and there's a descriptive or qualitative classification as well as a quantitative classification. The descriptive or qualitative classification is useful for simplification, though there is a high variability of segmental deviations in each pattern. Descriptive classifications have been unsuccessful at classifying up to 40% of cerebral palsy gait patterns. Now let's talk about some common descriptive classifications, which include Aquinas gait, jump gait, crouch gait, and stiff knee gait. The term Aquinas is used to refer to the isolated abnormality in foot position relative to the tibia. For example, in a one-level deviation, there is no knee slash hip involvement. And keep in mind that an isolated Aquinas gait is common in hemiplegics. Aquinas is either true Aquinas or apparent Aquinas. True Aquinas is defined by the foot position in relationship to the tibia being less than plantigrade. Apparent Aquinas is defined by a foot position that is normal in relationship to the tibia, however heel strike does not occur due to more proximal deviations where flexion of the knee is most common. Jump gait is a deformity that includes hip flexion, knee flexion, and Aquinas ankle deformity, which could result in apparent ankle Aquinas. Jump gait can also be seen in multi-level gait deviations where treatment of the underlying spasticity should be considered. Crouch gait is a combination of hip flexion, knee flexion, and excessive ankle dorsiflexion, which may be represented by flat foot. Crouch gait is common in diplegic cerebral palsy. 
and the pathophysiology is often related to an iatrogenic consequence of isolated lengthening in the Achilles in a jump gait pattern if the other levels of gait deviations are not addressed properly. As far as the levels of the deviation in a crouch gait, there is a calcaneal contact pattern throughout the stance phase. There's also increased knee flexion throughout the stance phase due to disruption of the ankle plantar flexion knee extension couple. Compensated crouch gait refers to tertiary deviations that allow the knee extensor mechanism to be offloaded during stance phase, for example, pelvic or truncal forward tilt. This may be well tolerated by younger children with cerebral palsy and low body mass. Uncompensated crouch gait occurs secondary to persistent overloading of the extensor mechanism. This occurs in all crouch eventually, if untreated. Finally, stiff knee gait is common in spastic diplegic cerebral palsy. This is characterized by limited knee flexion in swing phase due to the rectus femoris firing out of phase, and this is seen on EMG. Keep in mind that the other gait patterns that we described are stance phase deviations. As far as evaluation in the setting of a stiff knee gait, gait analysis reveals quadriceps activity from the terminal stance throughout the swing phase. As far as complications to consider, stiff knee gait can be a compensation due to deviations at the hip. Surgical management will not help this subset of stiff knee gait. It's important to note that the term equinus is used to refer to the isolated abnormality in foot position relative to the tibia. In other words, a one-level deviation, for example, no knee-slash-hip involvement. This is characterized by absence of heel strike during gait. And remember that isolated equinus gait is common in hemiplegics. Equinus is either true equinus or apparent equinus. True equinus is defined by the foot position in relationship to the tibia being less than plantigrade. Apparent equinus is defined by a foot position that is normal in relationship to the tibia, however heel strike does not occur due to more proximal deviations, where flexion of the knee is most common. Now let's quickly talk about the quantitative analysis, which uses technology to better characterize the pathoanatomy of abnormal gait, particularly when multiple planes and segments of deformity exist. The quantitative classification characterizes gait into three planes of deformity, that is the sagittal plane, coronal plane, and transverse plane. The sagittal plane includes anterior or posterior pelvic tilt, hip flexion slash extension, knee flexion slash extension, and ankle dorsiflexion slash plantar flexion. The coronal plane includes pelvic elevation slash depression and hip abduction slash adduction. The transverse plane is the least reliable plane described in instrumented gait analysis, and this includes pelvic and hip internal and external rotation deformities and a foot progression angle. A comprehensive gait analysis has helped identify distinct problems and guide orthopedic treatment. Quantitative gait analysis is more accurate at detecting gait abnormalities than is qualitative assessment alone. Comprehensive gait analysis may include the following components. Physical exam findings, which include spasticity assessment, contractures, and torsional abnormalities. Kinetic analysis, which procure linear accelerations, and moments that produce rotational accelerations acting on and within the body. Kinematic analysis, which is a description of movement and is typically described in segments and joints in three planes that is sagittal, coronal, and transverse. Pedobarography is a special force plate that shows contact pressures throughout the stance phase. Dynamic electromyography is muscle activation detected at different, whether normal or abnormal, start points in gait. And finally, comprehensive gait analysis may also include video. Treatment of cerebral palsy gait disorders can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management can include physical therapy, 
chemodenervation or botulinum neurotoxin A, or orthoses. Physical therapy plays an important role in both operative and non-operatively treated patients. Chemodenervation with botulinum neurotoxin A may be used to temporize certain muscle groups in order to delay surgical management or as a primary treatment modality. This is indicated for hamstring spasticity without fixed deformity in an ambulatory patient. Orthoses may include solid ankle foot orthosis or an AFO or a posterior leaf spring or hinged orthosis. A solid ankle foot orthosis or AFO is indicated for a flexible equinus deformity. The ankle is passively correctable to neutral while maintaining a subtalar neutral position. A posterior leaf sparing or hinged orthosis is used in the presence of excessive ankle plantar flexion in the swing phase. Operative options include a single event multi-level surgery. And as a quick overview, a single event multi-level surgery approach has become the gold standard of cerebral palsy gait surgery. The goal is to address all primary spasticity and secondary, for example, contracture deviations at multiple levels during a single surgery. Addressing multiple deviations at once is essential to avoid iatrogenic worsening of gait. Procedures used during a single-event multi-level surgery include an external rotation proximal femur osteotomy to assess lever arm dysfunction due to an increased femoral antiversion, intramuscular psoas lengthening to address hip flexion contracture, and several potential options for knee contractures include medial hamstring lengthening if there's a minimal fixed contracture, and keep in mind that a lateral hamstring lengthening may result in excessive weakness. Other options include guided growth, distal femur extension osteotomy, or a rectus transfer for stiff knee gait. A tendo-Achilles lengthening or gastrocnemius recession are procedures to address equinus, and finally, flat foot reconstruction is another potential procedure. As far as rehabilitation, AFOs and aggressive physical therapy for retraining and strengthening following releases is an essential component of a single-event multi-level surgery. Keep in mind that you should expect one year for recovery. Now, let's go over some of these techniques in a bit more detail. An extension rotation proximal femur osteotomy is indicated for femoral antiversion slash hip internal rotation deviation. A rectus transfer is indicated for a stiff knee gait, and the technique involves creating a knee flexion vector with rectus activation by transferring it posterior to the center of rotation of the knee. Medial hamstring lengthening is indicated for mild knee dysfunction and is usually done in younger patients with less than 5 degrees of knee flexion deformity. As far as technique, fractional lengthening at the myotendinous junction is ideal. As far as complications in the setting of a medial hamstring lengthening, hamstring contractures often recur, especially in the setting of a jump gait. Guided growth surgery is indicated when there's knee flexion deformities of 10 to 25 degrees in the patients with at least 2 years of growth remaining. Supracondylar femur extension osteotomy plus or minus patellar tendon advancement or shortening is indicated for knee flexion deformities of 10 to 30 degrees with severe quadriceps lag close to or already at skeletal maturity. Gastrocnemius recession is indicated with a silver skull test that is positive. The technique involves horizontal or vertical incision at the level of the myotendinous junction of the gastroc. Identify and protect the sural nerve, which is superficial to the fascia. You will then sharply divide the tendon only, preserving the muscle fibers not yet joined to the tendon. You will then incise all deeper bands that prevent release of the contracture, such as small raffes, which may be present in the tendon. You will then manipulate the ankle, and the goal of treatment is 10 degrees of dorsiflexion. Tendo-Achilles lengthening is indicated in rigid deformities when the ankle is not passively correctable to neutral. 
It's also indicated for true Aquinas and for silver skull tests that are negative. Techniques include a multiple hemi-lengthenings or a Z-lengthening, which can be performed, and make sure to avoid over-lengthening. Some complications to keep in mind include recurrent hamstring contracture, worsening crouch gait secondary to isolated and over-lengthening of the Achilles, patella alta, secondary to an elongated patellar tendon, which is another complication of this condition that is difficult to treat and can be seen with multiple simultaneous soft tissue releases without careful gait analysis. Finally, knee pain is another potential complication, and a tendo-Achilles lengthening may worsen knee pathology if careful gait analysis isn't performed. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, An 8-year-old boy is brought to your office for evaluation of his left leg. His history is significant for hemiplegic cerebral palsy affecting his left side, causing him to have a toe-walking gait. If surgery is selected to address the toe-walking, which of the following findings on physical examination of his left lower extremity suggest the need for only a gastrocnemius recession? And the choices are 1. Maximal ankle dorsiflexion of 20 degrees with the knee extended, 20 degrees with the knee flexed, and a popliteal angle of 55 degrees from vertical, 2. Maximal ankle dorsiflexion of negative 10 degrees with the knee extended, negative 10 degrees with the knee flexed, and a popliteal angle of 25 degrees from vertical. 3. Maximal ankle dorsiflexion of negative 20 degrees with the knee extended, negative 20 degrees with the knee flexed, and a popliteal angle of 55 degrees from vertical. 4. Maximal ankle dorsiflexion of negative 5 degrees with the knee extended, 20 degrees with the knee flexed, and a popliteal angle of 25 degrees from vertical and 5. Maximal ankle dorsiflexion of negative 5 degrees with the knee extended, 20 degrees with the knee flexed, and a popliteal angle of 55 degrees from vertical. The correct answer to this question is 4. Maximal ankle dorsiflexion of negative 5 degrees with the knee extended, 20 degrees with the knee flexed, and a popliteal angle of 25 degrees from the vertical. So the physical exam finding of increased dorsiflexion in the patient with the knee flexed as opposed to extended, known as the silver skull test, indicates isolated gastrocnemius tightness and no Achilles tendon contracture. The normal popliteal angle of 25 degrees indicates reasonable hamstring flexibility. Patients with cerebral palsy are prone to developing multiple types of lower extremity contractures. Isolated Aquinas contracture, resulting from spasticity of the gastrocnemius soleus complex, is common in hemiplegic cerebral palsy. However, it's critical to fully examine the lower extremities for contracture of other muscle groups, as some patients may walk on their toes as a result of increased knee flexion from hamstring contracture. Ankle Aquinas is assessed with the silver skull test, in which dorsiflexion of the ankle is compared with the knee extended and flexed. A normal popliteal angle is about 25 degrees, and popliteal angles greater than 50 degrees, or knee contractures, suggest significant hamstring tightness that should be treated with hamstring lengthening or other procedures. Barrick et al. describe how to clinically diagnose gastrocnemius tightness. They report on the silver skull test and state that there is gastrocnemius tightness when passive dorsiflexion of the ankle is negative or neutral with the knee in extension, and then corrects to normal with the knee flexed. Hindfoot valgus must be corrected to neutral or varus during the test for true dorsiflexion. The authors emphasize that a minimum of a 13-degree difference between knee extension and flexion is required to consider it gastrocnemius tightness, and no more than 2 kilograms of force should be applied during the test. 
Carroll et al. reviewed the surgical management of lower extremity spasticity in ambulatory cerebral palsy children. In patients with isolated gastrocnemius contracture, the overlying fascia of the gastrocnemius can be released while the muscle fibers are left intact. They also note that Achilles tendon lengthening in the wrong patient can lead to overlengthening of the gastroxoleus complex and calcaneus gait, which is characterized by ineffective push-off and knee flexion. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following developmental milestones is expected to occur in children aged between 12 to 18 months? And the choices are 1. Builds tower of 4 or more blocks. 2. Transfer toys from one hand to the other. 3. Jumping. 4. Walk without assistance. And 5. Throws ball overhand. The correct answer to this question is 4. Walk without assistance. So children between 12 to 18 months are expected to walk independently without assistance. Developmental milestones are things most children can do by a certain age. Categories include 1. Social and emotional. 2. Language and communication. 3. Cognitive. And 4. Movement slash physical development. When a child reaches 18 months of age, the movement slash physical development milestones include the ability to walk alone, walk up steps with assistance, pull toys while walking, help undress themselves, drink from a cup, and eat with a spoon. Burnett et al. studied the development of gait in 28 children whom were filmed sequentially throughout the initial period of independent gait. They found that the adult pattern of gait appeared within 40 to 55 weeks following the initiation of independent gait. Sutherland et al. also studied the development of gait. They studied over 160 children and showed that most children develop a mature gait pattern by the age of 3 years old. They concluded that there are five important determinants of mature gait. They include duration of single leg stance, walking velocity, cadence, step length, and ratio of pelvic span to ankle span. Moving on to the next question. A three-year-old female with spastic right hemiparesis and toe walking is currently being treated with AFO bracing. Her parents are concerned that the brace is not fitting well and is not improving the toe walking. Right ankle dorsiflexion is 10 degrees short of neutral position. Left ankle dorsiflexion is positive 15 degrees. She received a botulinum injection into the right gastrocnemius one month ago. What is the next best step in treatment? And the choices are 1. Continue brace treatment for right foot and ankle only. 2. Repeat right calf Botox injection. 3. Serial casting of right foot and ankle. 4. Implantation of intrathecal baclofen pump and 5. Right percutaneous heel cord lengthening. The correct answer to this question is 3. Serial casting of right foot and ankle. So this patient is unable to achieve a right plantigrade foot. Serial casting is an effective treatment method for patients less than 6 years old with mild spasticity and should allow her to resume bracing once the foot is plantigrade. To quickly review, equinus deformity of the ankle may be due to abnormal shortening of the muscle, an exaggerated stretch reflex, or a combination of these pathologies. The goal of both non-operative and operative treatment is to achieve and maintain a plantigrade foot, prevent skeletal deformity, and improve gait efficiency. Non-operative treatments for equinus include serial casting, physical therapy, intramuscular injections of botulinum toxin A, and ankle foot orthoses. Surgical treatment of equinus deformity should be delayed until the patient is at least 6 years old to prevent recurrence. Cotalorda et al. performed a retrospective study analyzing the value of serial corrective casts in the management of toe-walking children aged less than 6 years with cerebral palsy. 
after removal of the cast, all patients showed improved function with plantigrade gait. Mean passive dorsiflexion was 20 degrees with the knee in extension and 28 degrees with the knee in flexion after cast removal. Brower et al. examined the neuromuscular function and gait in children with cerebral palsy and idiopathic toe walking with a mean age of 7.1 years, and these patients were treated with serial casting for 3 to 6 weeks. After casting, both groups were found to have increased dorsiflexion range, decreased resistance to passive stretch, and produced maximal plantar flexor torques in dorsiflex positions. The authors noted that the effects of serial casting may be longer-lasting in patients with idiopathic toe walking. Boyd et al. prospectively studied the effects of botulinum toxin A on the gastroxoleus cycle in ambulatory patients with cerebral palsy. All children demonstrated improvements in sagittal ankle kinematics. Using 3D gait analysis, the authors also devised two new measures of ankle kinetics, ankle moment quotient, and ankle power quotient. There was a statistically significant improvement in ankle moment quotient and ankle power quotient, which the authors concluded provides evidence of biomechanics transformation of muscle. Moving on to the next question. A three-year-old girl was evaluated for toe walking. Her history was remarkable for prematurity with known intracranial hemorrhage. Her recent neurologic workup included a brain MRI scan showing periventricular leukomalacia. She walked at age two. Gait examination revealed a crouched gait on tiptoes with knees and hips flexed. Passive range of motion testing revealed hip flexion contractures of 5 degrees, hamstring contractures of 15 degrees on popliteal angle testing, and ankle dorsiflexion to neutral in knee extension and 15 degrees above neutral in knee flexion. Initial treatment should consist of, and the choices are 1, percutaneous Achilles lengthening, 2, open Achilles tendon lengthening, 3, ankle bracing and therapy, and four, steroid therapy. The correct answer to this question is three, ankle bracing and therapy. So bracing and therapy are the best initial treatments. The history and examination reveals spastic diplegia with a gross motor function classification scale two grade, which is a static brain injury that is not progressive. Brain MRI scan findings of periventricular leukomalacia are often seen in spastic diplegia. Her examination shows mild contractures on range of motion testing. The ankle range of motion examination shows a gastrocnemius contracture, and dorsiflexion is much improved in knee flexion. With a true Achilles contracture, ankle dorsiflexion does not improve in knee flexion. Her history does not support muscular dystrophy, for which steroid therapy can improve short-term function. Surgery is not indicated at this age with this amount of contracture. Moving on to the next question. A posterior leaf spring ankle foot orthosis would be appropriate for which foot and ankle malalignment pattern in a child with spastic type cerebral palsy? And the choices are 1, absent heel strike, excessive plantar flexion in the swing phase, and 5 degrees of passive ankle dorsiflexion. 2, excessive ankle dorsiflexion in mid-stance caused by incompetence of the ankle plantar flexors. 3, crouch gait pattern with excessive ankle dorsiflexion, increased knee flexion, and increased hip flexion in mid-stance. 4, excessive supination of the hind foot during stance, which is passively correctable. And 5, significant knee instability and weakness with stance in a child who is minimally ambulatory. The correct answer to this question is 1, absent heel strike, excessive plantar flexion in the swing phase, and 5 degrees of passive ankle dorsiflexion. 
so specific indications for the different orthoses used to improve gait and cerebral palsy may vary among providers. Davids et al. discussed these indications in their review article. The authors state that the factors that make the posterior leaf spring ankle foot orthosis most appropriate are the clinical presence of absent heel strike and minimal but some dorsiflexion. The posterior leaf spring ankle foot orthosis is designed to control excessive ankle plantar flexion in the swing phase and allow ankle dorsiflexion in mid-stance. A solid AFO is both a stance and swing phase control orthosis, which can help with excessive ankle dorsiflexion in mid-stance. A crouch gait pattern may attempt to be treated with a floor reaction AFO. And a knee ankle foot orthosis is useful for maintaining knee position and stability in children who primarily stand and are minimally ambulatory. Supermalleolar orthoses are used to control flexible coronal plane deformities such as excessive supination or pronation of the hind foot. Moving on to the next question. A 7-year-old boy with spastic diplegia is a limited community ambulator. He has a moderately severe crouched gait. The parents request a treatment that will result in a permanent decrease in lower extremity muscle tone. This is best accomplished with, and the choices are 1, tone reduction ankle foot orthosis, 2, intramuscular injections of botulinum A toxin, 3, an intrathecal baclofen injection, 4, selective posterior rhizotomy, and 5, fractional tendon lengthening of bilateral hamstring and gastrocnemius muscles. The correct answer to this question is 4, selective posterior rhizotomy. So posterior rhizotomy provides a permanent reduction in tone of spastic muscles. Potential drawbacks of the procedure include excessive muscle weakness, hip dislocation, and spinal deformity. Intramuscular botulinum A toxin results in permanent blockade of presynaptic release of acetylcholine across the neuromuscular junction. The clinical effect usually resolves after 3 to 6 months due to neural regeneration. Tone reduction AFOs have not been shown to reduce tone. A baclofen pump could offer prolonged reduction in tone, but not a single intrathecal injection. And moving on to the final question, a 22-month-old girl has cerebral palsy. Which of the following findings is a good prognostic indicator of the child's ability to walk in the future? And the choices are 1. Asymmetric tonic neck reflex, 2. Moral reflex, 3. Extensor thrust, 4. Positive parachute reaction, and 5. Absent foot placement. The correct answer to this question is 4. Positive parachute reaction. So for the parachute test, the examiner holds the child prone, then lowers the child rapidly toward the floor. The parachute reaction is normal or positive if the child reaches toward the floor. The moro or startle reflex should not be present beyond age 6 months. Asymmetric tonic neck reflex, extensor thrust, and absent foot placement are abnormal findings at any age. That's all for this review about cerebral palsy gait disorders. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, 
LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.